You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, April 5th, 2021. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. We'll have an update on the Derek Chauvin trial from Racial Reckoning. Then the California report from KQED has the latest on the legislative battle facing the unauthorized immigrants known as the Dreamers. National Native News reports on a vaccination initiative uniting Alaska Native tribes with the U.S. Air Force. And after a roundup of regional news and weather, we'll take a walk in the park with Sid Brown, board member of Sierra Gold Parks Foundation. This is Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice. Here's Faven Gorinskaher with today's update. The first week of the Derek Chauvin trial concluded Friday with one longtime Minneapolis officer testifying that Chauvin's use of force on George Floyd was totally unnecessary. Pulling him down to the ground face down and putting your knee on a neck for that amount of time is just um, uncalled for. Chief of Homicide Lieutenant Richard Zimmerman has served on the force since 1985. He said Chauvin violated his training in using the most deadly level of force, adding that having Floyd in handcuffs had already reduced the threat to officer safety. Thursday, the city released survey results indicating local support for the reopening of 38th in Chicago as part of their public safety plan. However, some community members are skeptical. Organizer Marsha Howard challenges the narrative that local residents and George Floyd Square occupiers are two distinct groups. If you're in this space, you see that it's residents. We walk to the barricade from our homes. We're residents who are just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And it's our neighborhood, so we're the ones that sweep the street. We feed people, we house the houseless. Howard says the square is a center for art and mutual aid that has brought the neighborhood together. She says the city must continue to take meaningful steps toward police reform. Until then, Howard says organizers plan to continue to resist the reopening of George Floyd Square. It's only after we get a modicum of justice that we'll talk about moving out of the way. But to be clear, injustice closed these streets. So shouldn't justice open up? For the Racial Reckoning Project, I'm Faven Garazgihad. Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice is produced and supported by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, in partnership with KMLJ Radio and the Minnesota Humanities Center. Online at racialreckoningmn.org. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. A temporary shelter for unaccompanied migrant children that's opened at San Diego's Convention Center is expected to reach its maximum capacity in the coming days. Nearly 1,200 teenage girls and some boys, mostly from Central America, are being sheltered there. But there's room for only a couple of hundred more. In addition, over 130 of the children have tested positive for COVID. They've been separated from the rest of the minors and are living on a different floor at the convention center. Meanwhile, federal authorities are considering two more facilities in California to temporarily house unaccompanied migrant children. The Department of Health and Human Services has asked to use the California National Guard's Camp Roberts, located near Paso Robles. A Pentagon spokesperson confirms that they have received the request. The city of Long Beach's convention center could also be used as a temporary shelter, according to the Long Beach Post. But city officials haven't confirmed any talks with the federal government.
Meanwhile, California is home to an estimated 900,000 undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children, many of whom are waiting for the Senate to pass legislation that would offer them a path to citizenship. The House approved such legislation last month. KQED's Farida Javala Romero reports on one California dreamer working to achieve permanent protections. In September 2017, Gabriela Cruz watched in shock as the Trump administration announced it was ending Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. That was like a a big wake-up call for me. The Obama-era program had allowed her and hundreds of thousands of other young undocumented immigrants to work legally in this country and be safe from deportation. Also felt like I, I could live my life in peace and look forward to a future. At the time, she was 27 and working at a mortgage bank in Santa Cruz, where she has lived since her mom brought her from Mexico as a baby. Losing DACA would have meant going back into the shadows. She had to do something, so she and her mom started selling hundreds of homemade tamales to raise money for a trip to Washington, D.C. with other DACA recipients. Young immigrants were gathering again before the Capitol to rally in support of the DREAM Act, which was introduced in Congress for the first time in 2001. says hearing and being a part of chants and protests like this one made her realize she could not live her life in fear. She became a full-time organizer. This is about demanding dignity and equality for our community. Cruz is now 31 and the California coordinator for United We Dream, a national network pushing to legalize undocumented immigrants. Part of that is getting this year's DREAM Act through the Senate. That bill would offer a pathway to citizenship to an estimated 1.7 million dreamers. Polls show Americans overwhelmingly support that. But the proposed legislation needs 60 votes to pass in the evenly split Senate. Immigration advocates and undocumented young people in particular have a very difficult hill to climb. Tom Wong directs the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at UC San Diego. So the question is, where do those additional 10 votes come from, assuming that Democrats hold party line? For now, United We Dream and other advocates say they've been meeting with Republican Senate staffers and trying to pressure senators like Marco Rubio of Florida. Protesters live-streamed as they brought a mariachi band to Rubio's home last week to, quote, wake him up to protect immigrants. Wong says even if the bill doesn't get the 60 votes, the fight is far from over. We have seen undocumented young people put their lives at stake in order to advance things like DACA. And so I think we can expect uh, similar things to come. Gabriela Cruz says they'll keep up the pressure on lawmakers and President Biden, who campaigned on more humane immigration policies, bringing out first-time voters like Cruz's two younger sisters who were born in the U.S. Now it's time for them to fulfill these promises that they made to our community and come through. And many people who voted for the first time came from mixed-status families like mine. So not only is the immigrant community ready for this, but as a country, we are ready for this. And that's a dream she'll keep fighting for. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero.
Support for the California Report comes from the law firm Perkins Coie, a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at PerkinsCOIE.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Roughly a million Californians could soon see additional food assistance under a settlement agreed to recently by the Biden administration. KQED politics reporter Guy Maserati has more. At the start of the pandemic, Congress passed an emergency expansion of food stamps, sending around a hundred extra dollars a month to low-income households. But the Trump administration blocked the extra benefits from going to families who already received the maximum $194 a month through the program called CalFresh in California. Participants in California sued the Trump administration. Now, the Biden administration says it will settle the suit and start issuing the extra food benefits. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. And finally, a nearly 30-year wait for the Stanford Cardinal has ended, with the women's basketball team capturing its third national title, defeating Arizona 54-53 to yesterday. The Cardinal ended the season with a 31-2 record. They last won the NCAA title in 1992. Senior guard Kiana Williams spoke after the game about the challenges they faced this year. I don't think any other team um, in this tournament had to, you know, live out of a suitcase, live out, live out of a hotel for, for 10 weeks uh, during the season. Um, and we had to do that because that's how bad we wanted to play. The team was forced on the road for nearly 10 weeks because of COVID-19 regulations in Santa Clara County, spending 86 days in hotels. Sophomore Haley Jones, who had 17 points on Sunday, was named the tournament's most outstanding player. And that's the California Report for Monday, April 5th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in L.A. Thanks for listening and have a great day. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Tanana Chiefs Conference has administered more than 14,000 doses of COVID-19 vaccines since the pandemic began to Alaska Natives and non-Natives around the interior. Last week, the Fairbanks-based organization donated 800 surplus doses to an Air Force base for service members, their families, and civilian employees who work there. KUAC's Tamelis reports. Tanana Chiefs has been inoculating people in Fairbanks and more than two dozen outlying communities since late December. And when the organization got an extra allotment of the Moderna vaccine last month from the Federal Indian Health Service, TCC Chief and Chairman P.J. Simon said he and other leaders wondered how they could best use the surplus. And we thought, well, let's offer it to the U.S. military. They provide us protection and give us our freedom, you know, Freedom isn't free. Ielson spokesperson Staff Sergeant Kaylee Dubois says base officials were thankful for the offer. We appreciate the doses we received from the Tanana Chiefs Conference, and we're looking forward to providing these vaccines to volunteers in our base community as soon as possible. Dubois says while Ielson continues vaccinating as many of its personnel as possible, the service members and their families and civilian workers have all been maintaining precautions, like wearing face masks and keeping social distance to help reduce the spread of the disease on and off base. 
in the fight against COVID, we're all in this together. Simon says the Tanana chiefs also believe that a unified effort is essential to halt the spread of COVID in and around Fairbanks. We're just uh, happy to be part of the community and to help contribute, you know, the tribes want to contribute to everybody pulling out of this uh, pandemic. That's why Tanana Chiefs began offering free vaccinations to Fairbanks North Star Borough School District workers in late February. And in March, the organization began offering the vaccine to everyone in Fairbanks age 16 and up. For National Native News, I'm Tim Ellis in Fairbanks, Alaska. The Biden administration created a group to advise environmental councils within the White House about how to best challenge longstanding and current environmental injustices. Emma Gibson from Arizona Public Media reports one of the advisors is a Havasupai Tribal Council member. Arizona's representative on the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council is Carletta Tolusi. She says though the council is still getting off the ground, she wants it to be an opportunity for environmental injustice leaders to ensure policies and laws are enforced. We have international companies that are staking claim in poor communities. Their contamination seeping directly into our water. I want to hear that these companies are going to be held responsible. Tulusi has strongly opposed uranium mining in the Grand Canyon area where the Havasupai tribe is based. She says she's hopeful the council can make a difference, but she knows change doesn't happen overnight. For National Native News, I'm Emma Gibson. The New Mexico Indian Affairs Department Friday announced the creation of an Indigenous Youth Council. It was formed following listening sessions the department held with tribal youth. Young people expressed they wanted to connect with peers across the state. Some of the needs they shared in the listening sessions involve access to higher education resources and behavioral and mental health services. Seven youth council members were selected from tribes in the state to work with the department. Indian Affairs Department Cabinet Secretary Lynn Trujillo praised the creation of the youth council and says the department looks forward to hearing and learning from the next generation of tribal leadership. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous population. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Community Environment is Sacred is a series of on-demand films portraying a native revolution to environmentally align with nature in celebration of International Earth Day. Available through April 30th at visionmakermedia.org who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Water use restrictions could be on the way for Northern California. The Nevada Irrigation District reported today via ubinet.com that the month of March produced only half of average high country precipitation. NID is asking customers to conserve water as we move into the warmer, drier spring. During the NID snow survey taken on the last two days of March, surveyors found the snow water equivalent in the Sierra snowpack was about 24 inches, which is 72% of the normal average of 33.5 inches for this time of year. At Bowman Lake, NID measured almost 5.5 inches of precipitation during March.
March produced half of the average precipitation for the month, adding two inches of water content to our snowpack, said NID's Water Resources Superintendent Thor Larson. The district is encouraging all customers to conserve water. The National Weather Service in Sacramento tweeted today that the Sierra snowpack stands at about half of normal and that any meaningful precipitation chances through mid-April are very low. California water officials on Thursday reported the statewide snowpack at 59% of average as the state continues to experience one of the driest years on record. These conditions could indicate a return of water use restrictions for the first time since 2016. As of late this morning, Nevada County Public Health was reporting 34 new confirmed COVID-19 cases over the weekend. 122 cases are active. Three people are hospitalized, with none in intensive care. In the weather forecast for our region, tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley, partly cloudy with a low of 46 degrees. On Tuesday, mainly sunny with a high of 67 degrees and a low of 49. In Truckee tonight, clear skies with a low of 23 degrees. Tuesday in Truckee, sunny with a high of 62 degrees and a low of 27. In Sacramento, mostly clear tonight with a low of 44 degrees. Tuesday in Sacramento, a few morning clouds will give way to mainly sunny skies with a high of 77 and a low of 46. And now it's time for a walk in the park. KVMR's new bi-monthly state parks report, presented by Sid Brown. Sierra Gold Parks Foundation is the support organization for all three of our Western Nevada County state parks. That's Empire Mine State Historic Park, South Yuba River State Park, and Malakoff Diggins State Historic Park. You know, all three parks can be visited in a single day. I did that yesterday. I started at Empire Mine, and I toured the mine yard and did a short little walk, and then I drove to Bridgeport, had a fabulous time there checking out the wildflowers. We'll talk about that a little bit more later, and then I drove to Malakoff Diggins and then back along Tyler Foot Road to the 49 Crossing on the South Yuba River and then back to Empire Mines. So that can all be done in a single day. It's about a 75-mile loop. But I don't recommend you do it in a single day because there's so much to see at each of those three lovely state parks. Something new this week, there are new no-parking signs that have been installed along Pleasant Valley Road just as you arrive to Bridgeport and heading on up out of the park. And these are newly installed by the county, so I want to advise people that when you see those no parking signs, please don't park there. That enables the emergency vehicles to access if there's an emergency to cross the bridge to attend to whatever is needed on the river or even the other side of the river. We do have a lovely parking lot, and we encourage people to use the parking lot. Let's see. Oh, the wildflowers at Buttermilk Bend Trail are at their peak right now, and they probably will last another couple of weeks, I would guess, with the weather cooling down at night. But it's been well attended. Plenty of people are coming out and enjoying the park, and they are certainly not being disappointed. 
wildflowers are starting to spring up at Empire Mine, as well as some of the planted irises and fancy daffodils. The lawns at Empire Mine are looking gorgeous, all bright green and beautiful for bringing your family and having picnics. The buildings are still closed, although the blacksmiths are still providing demonstrations at Empire Mine every day that the park is open if you go inside the historic core area, and that's from 10 until 4. At Malakoff, again, the historic buildings are closed, but we now do have staffing at the Park Visitor Center from Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from normal business hours. I believe it's from 9 until 4 or 10 till 4 at Malakoff. But regardless of the time of day, the parks, all three parks, trails are open to the public despite COVID-19. The trails have always been open and they are in very good shape at all three parks. Let's see. Um, the restoration of the bridge at South Yuba is still underway, and the workers are just busy as bees uh, putting those timbers in place. I would like to say that we do still have a hard closure of Independence Trail on the South Yuba, and as the weather is heating up, please do stay out of the water. People are tempted to go into the South Yuba when it's nice and warm outside. The air temperature creeps up and you get pretty warm. But the river waters are icy cold. The snow melt is occurring in a fairly rapid rate. And so the, the current of the river is high as well. So we really, really implore you to be safe and to stay out of the water, please, at this time. For going to Malakoff Diggins, some people go via North Bloomfield Road out of Nevada City, and I would encourage you to not use that route because of the unpaved portion is very rough on your car. So it's the same amount of time whether you come from Nevada City if you go via North Bloomfield Road over Edwards Crossing and on up to the park or if you drive on Highway 49 to Tyler Foot Road and then go east on Tyler Foot Road to the park. It's 15 miles from the 49 Tyler Foot Road intersection. Well, wildflowers are the, sort of the big story of the day. So the docents have, been, have placed the signs at Buttermilk Bend Trail identifying the various wildflowers. And so that's a really cool thing that wasn't in effect the last time I was down there. One little news update is that the Point Defiance Trail, we would encourage people at Bridgeport to try to stay off the Point De Defiance Trail at this time while park staff is repairing a pedestrian bridge. Folks have been bypassing that construction area and doing some damage to the wildflowers and the resources. And so if you could just have a little bit of patience to please avoid the Point Defiance Trail just for another week or so when we get that pedestrian bridge reconstructed and open. So we'll be reporting on the status of that on our next report. Sierra Gold Parks Foundation is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting Western Nevada County's three state parks. You can find out more at sierragoldparksfoundation.org. That's our newscast. 
The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs at 6 p.m. every Monday through Friday. We get support from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether that's online, over the air, in a can or bottle. More at sierranevada.com. And California Solar Electric Company, a locally owned solar cooperative. California Solar Electric Company is a SunPower Elite dealer designing and installing residential, home battery storage, and commercial solar systems in Nevada County since 2000. Information, cal-solar.coop.